Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. You are not the type of guy that would be in a place like this at this time in the morning, Jay McInerney. But here you are. But here you are at the <laughs> that's, podcast. That's uh, yeah. Well, um, it's good to be here, and uh, I um, I love to talk about food, wine, writing. Um, Which of those came first for you? Well, I suppose uh, I, I was a writer before I was a writer about wine, and in fact, um, it never occurred to me that I would or could write about wine. But in uh, 1996, a friend of mine took over House and Garden as the editor-in-chief. And she felt like the kind of consumer that she was after was interested in food and wine as part of the good life. And she did some research, and she really didn't like, as a wine lover, she didn't like what she read about wine. She didn't like the sort of, you know, wine spectator kind of, technical slash travelogue approach and she didn't like the you know the sort of english um this wine smells like hibiscus approach and um um and she just felt like there wasn't much out there that spoke to her and so she conceived this idea of getting a writer to write about wine as opposed to a wine expert and when she first approached me i said that you know i just didn't i said you know i just don't know nearly enough about wine to to write about it and um she felt that could be a strength if uh, you know particularly if i admitted that i didn't really know what malolactic fermentation was she also knew that i was incredibly passionate about wine that was why she approached me like it, fact, you she, liked wine you she, enjoyed she wine. had been to my dinner parties and yeah yeah i mean i more than liked wine I, I i collected it i read about it i spent a lot of time pouring over wine catalogs so when i say i didn't know enough i i I just meant that it seemed to me you had to know everything if you were going to write about wine. And and she said, no, I mean, why, why should you have to know everything? Why don't you just sort of, you know, why don't you write as if you're a one chapter ahead of the, in the textbook uh, and admit it when you, when you're learning something new. And, uh, and she did, but she just felt really that most wine writing was pretty boring and that, that there had to be a way around that. And maybe, you know, approaching someone who, was adept at using metaphors and similes and writing about characters was a way to make one writing a little more interesting, at, at least to her and presumably to her readers. And so, um, 
You know, I said I'd try it for six months, and uh, it turns out I'm still doing it uh, today. Although House and Garden folded in 2007, it was a sort of it was in the advance guard of the <laughs> of the magazine's closing, and uh, uh, so I took about a three I took a three year hiatus, and uh, and then the journal, the Wall Street Journal, approached me in 2010. But they had published. There had been a publication of your short work from House and Garden in a book form in the meantime. I published two wine books that collected my essays about wine. Well, the essays is a little bit grandiose. They were columns, but someone um, from a small press approached me about three or four years after I started the, the wine column, and they wanted to collect the columns. And so I, I had to approach my own publisher, the publisher of my fiction, which was Alfred A. Knopf, and say, uh, do you guys mind? Do you want to do it yourselves? And they, they sort of said, oh, no, no, no problem. You, uh, you go out, you go right ahead and publish your little wine book. And uh, it actually sold extremely well. Bacchus and Me, the first one. Uh, Bacchus and Me, yeah. So that they, it, as it turned out, they were quite happy to do the next one, which was called A Hedonist in the Cellar. And it just became, I mean, I guess inevitably I learned a lot more about wine because thanks to Condé Nast's rather lavish expense account, I was you know, traveling around the world, visiting winemakers, learning about wine, tasting wine. Um, it was a great education. I mean, it was the best way to get a wine education. You know, you want to, you like Didier Dagano, go visit him, you know. <laughs> and I sort of made it a rule that I, I wouldn't, I didn't write about anything that I hadn't seen I didn't want to do those pieces that were based on having lunch with somebody in New York, you know? I mean, I, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to see what the land looked like and uh, what the soil looked like and what the, you know, I mean, not so much the cellar because cellars can be pretty cold, pretty uniform <laughs> and cold. But, um, and, you know, to, to meet the people and hang with them. And, um, and I, I think part of my approach was always to write about the people who make wine. You know they're they're a pretty interesting tribe, and uh, what do you think about those? <laughs> oh, I think um, they're a very interesting crew. You know, they really fall. There's two broad categories. I think you know there, there are those, particularly in Europe, who inherited family domains, who decided to continue the tradition. In the New World, uh, the story of, of a wine domain is usually the story of somebody who's incredibly er successful in some area, other area of life, who loves wine. And then goes and reinvents uh, himself or herself as a winery owner or even a winemaker. And those are always good stories. You know, I mean, everybody in Napa fits in that category. Uh, a lot of people in Sonoma. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting to consider the connection of personality and, and the finished product of the wine. Uh, although, as a guy with an old world palate, I, I think maybe terroir often trumps the <laughs> the personality of the winemaker. You know, it's very it's very tempting to say that Francois Ravenot is kind of a an austere guy and he makes austere wines and you know and I think probably I was a little bit too prone to that type of thinking when I first started writing about wine. But uh, you know, that's part of the learning process. What do those winemakers think about you? I mean, you have some experience right with self-invention, self-reinvention. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of them know who I am from another world. And I think initially there was a lot of surprise every time I called up or showed up. What's, what's this novelist doing in my cellar? But uh, eventually 
I know. Eventually, by the time I started writing for the journal, it was pretty well known that I was writing about wine. They stopped uh, making the cocaine because, jokes. <laughs> What's this one smell like, yeah. Jay? Cocaine? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, that was the, the, the food editor of House and Garden was, was violently opposed to me being the wine writer because she, um, she felt that I couldn't possibly have a, have a nose left. And, uh, so I had, to, I had to convince her. I had to win her over, which I eventually did, although unfortunately I, I, I showed up at lunch at the Four Seasons the first time we met after a, like an all-nighter with Brad Easton Ellis. And I was not showing my best, as we say, about certain wines. <laughs> but did you guys, you and Brett used to hang in real life? Because you were kind of lumped together by the press when you came yeah. up as a novelist. Yeah, we became really good friends. A friend of mine named Morgan Entrican told me shortly after Bright Lights came out that he was publishing a book uh, set in Los Angeles, and that he was going to promote it as the West Coast version of Bright Lights Big City. And um, in the meantime, I was on a panel with Brett, who sort of, you know, became very talked about even before the book came out, because he was very young. And, uh, you know, the book it was fairly, the subject matter was fairly sensational. And uh, and basically, I, I, I was just going through the whole ringer of, you know, the press and the good and bad and the rewards and the drawbacks of writing a, a novel that is judged to be a sort of zeitgeist document. And, uh, and I could see what, that it was, the same thing was going to happen to him. And so I just kind of befriended him. I remember our first, I mean, the first time we went out together, we went to Indochine, like virtually the night that it opened. And, uh, and, and then we went to the MTV Music Awards together. It sounds very... McInerney Ellis, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> we yeah, we became really good friends, and we would. Uh, I mean, whenever we were both in town, we would we would we would always have a Friday night dinner, and some, sometimes the dinner lasted till Saturday morning, <laughs> which <laughs> was uh, I, I think the case the first time that I met Laura Zerubin, the food editor of um, House and Garden. As I said, we eventually became great friends and traveled. We traveled all around the world together. She, I, I think she somehow convinced them that I wasn't capable of escorting myself around the world and so she got to go on all these trips she actually has a great palate she knows a lot about wine but we had these great adventures together um laura's gay so um well so is brett it, it was yeah, yes but i but but in other words it was you know it it was um you weren't shacking up on the way yeah it was, it was an interesting your wife was, shouldn't it, get upset about fraught, this story yes yeah, so my yes my various wives uh, over the years didn't didn't um didn't worry too much about this but we were you know, we were um, a comedy act, really. I mean, we, we got we got arrested together. You know, we got lost in the back roads in Italy, screaming at each other that you know about whose fault it was. I mean, she wouldn't let me drive because she hated my driving. Um, so I was the navigator. Um, I, you know, and then she would like fend off waitresses and stuff. It was weird for somebody who's gay. She she really she really managed to get between me and <laughs> and an awful lot of women. <laughs> but. Uh, it was uh, it was a great adventure for I don't know ten or eleven years, and um, uh, I never thought that you know this would become part of my life. It was always a, a diversion, uh, or or for a while I thought of it as a diversion, and now now it's a great part of my life. I love I love being in the wine world. I love the people. Uh, but originally, it was just something you did to kind of like break your mind out of the yeah, novel thing. It was yeah, it was just a it was just a kind of a an adventure, um, 
you know, a diversion. Uh, I really didn't think I would stick with it, but uh, it seems I have. <laughs> it's been about it's been about nineteen years now. But if I was really celebrated for being a novelist, which you were, mm. I might find it kind of a relief to do something where the pressure yeah. was off. Honestly, it was. It really was because you know, sitting down to write a novel is a really daunting task, and uh, uh, writing. Writing a 1,200-word wine column is not nearly so daunting. And, and also the focus isn't on me. You know, I like, I like getting outside. As a fiction writer, you, in some way, you're, you're pulling a lot of it out of yourself. And, and you're, you're always starting from scratch in a way. Whereas, you know, journalism of any kind, at least you've, you've got the subject matter. You know, you've got the donné, the, the given. And, uh, and, you know, I do other types of journalism as well. Um, you wanted but, to be a journalist originally. Like you went to school well, and you were like, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I always wanted to be a, I always wanted to be a novelist, but it seemed that journalism was a way, was a way to go. I never really wanted to do the teaching thing. Most American fiction writers uh, teach English at colleges or uh, high schools or universities, and it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But I just, I, I didn't feel like I wanted to be. In the university, you know, I, you know, I, I, I got my master's degree, and that was it. I, then I wanted to be out in the world, and um, you know, writing about uh, wine or a, or about a trial or anything else, it gets you out of the apartment and out of your own head in a way that that I found to be a great relief after sort of ten years, ten, eleven years of of just writing fiction and and and, and having everybody watching me very closely, you know. Because you were in the score. Uh, my first jar. book was extremely successful. And after that, there wasn't a lot of room for just playing, for flubs, for, you know, screwing around, for mistakes, for, um, yeah, I, I felt really, really scrutinized as a novelist. And Some people write, gave write, you a hard write, time, right? Writing, oh, God, yeah, yeah, no, I got It wasn't of, like everyone I was like, this guy's amazing. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, the the more amazing you are you are in the beginning the 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 more rapidly some people feel the need to <laughs> supply the necessary corrective backlash i think but you know i was i was also you know i was living in new york city i was living a a, a very visible life as a guy who went out at night and and suddenly there were you know there were photographers around and uh, suddenly there were reporters around writing down what i said whether or writing down some version of what i said <laughs> And, you know, all of that created a kind of, very quickly created a kind of persona that, you know, it was based in reality, but it was, but it was also terribly exaggerated. And, and where I really just wanted to escape all of that. And, and writing about wine was a way to escape. Uh, it was a way to, you know, in the, in the first few years I was writing about wine, I mean, very few people even noticed it. You know, and I was, that was fine with me. I, I kind of wanted to go under the radar. Well, particularly, particularly in the beginning, because as I say, I was, I was not terribly confident about my wine knowledge. I, you know, I wasn't Robert Parker. Uh, I wasn't Jancis Robinson. There was no question and, and nor would I ever be. So I, I, I was okay with me that, that even a lot of people in the wine world had no idea I was writing about wine. But you had a literary was, cachet that they'll right. never have, right? You had well, a, this expertise in this other field. Well, I was lucky because I mean, that did open a lot of doors for me. I mean, you know, I think that there were places that I went that the House and Garden card wouldn't have opened the door, and the Jay McInerney card did. So I benefited 
from that. But I really, you know, I, I really wanted it to be kind of a low-key sideline. I didn't want to be Mr. Wine. I didn't want to be the best wine writer in the world. I just wanted to, I just wanted to be part of it, you know. And, 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 I, and I found the community very welcoming. Um, I mean, the more that people did get to know me as, as someone who wrote about wine, the more I felt like I was welcomed, you know. The, the literary world can be incredibly uh, exclusive and bitchy. And, you know, the joke in the, in the writing world is, you know, nobody is bitchier than poets because the, <laughs> the rewards are so, you know, there's such a limited pool of rewards. And, uh, you know, they're, they're fighting for much smaller scraps than, say, filmmakers are, uh, or novelists even for that matter. But, but likewise with novelists, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty competitive field. There's, there's not a, as much community as, as one might hope. I'm, you know, I certainly have my very good friends who are writers, but, but it's not like the food and wine world where, you know, it's a very large club and I felt very, but it is a club. They're both kinds of yeah, clubs, right? They're both That's kinds of clubs, but I think, but the wine world, which we can't really separate from the food world, I think is much more inclusive, much more welcoming than at least I found it that way. But, but you, you know, like clubs, right? Like You're attracted to clubs. <laughs> I mean, right? Like social sets, well, right? You yes, like but that. But I like them. I like them to be inclusive, you know? And I just think, you know, the people who make wine are among the happier people in the world. They tend to live in incredibly beautiful places. They tend to be buzzed half the time. They tend to eat really well and travel around the world, you know? I mean, it's a good life. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I just felt very glad to be part of it. You know, and I think that really comes through, especially in the early wine writing, because as opposed to the novels that you wrote, the wine writing is really enthusiastic and happy and like joyful. <laughs> and, the, yeah. and the novels are kind of like disappointed, <laughs> sad, apprehensive. We just lost something that was important to us. I don't know. What do you do to have fun? I'm not sure. Well, a lot of people find Bright Lights Big City to be a comedy. I don't know. But. Do they really? Yeah. Is that just because Michael Fox is in the movie? Or? Oh, God. Michael Fox is an afterthought. But uh, no, I, well, I mean, Bright Lights is in many respects, a comic novel. Did you mean it that way? I mean, when, when, when I read the first, when I read parts of Bright, Bright Lights, audiences, they laugh. I oh, mean, okay. Because Brett Easton Ellis had you, the same you, problem you with gotta, you uh, gotta, American Psycho. You've got to go back and look at it because it's, um, Bright Lights is a comedy more than anything, I think. Uh, but I mean, about embarrassment, right? Well, like embarrassment can be funny. <laughs> but, yeah, but you're right that my, yeah, my wine writing certainly had a different tone. You know, I write about wine as a lover and not as a, not as a fighter, not as a critic, really, you know, and there's a lot of shitty wine out there and you know what? I just don't write about it. And I'm really grateful to people like Robert Parker and Antonio Galloni and Stephen Tanzer who, you know, who just taste everything and, and judge it and, and write about it. But, but I kind of, um, I just write about the things that I really like that make me, uh, make me enthusiastic, make me happy, make me you know, want to um, whoop and have sex and party on. and So I, I guess you're right. There's a different tone in the wine writing. It's, a, it's, it's one of, of, of appreciation and it's one of, of, of passion and enthusiasm. Who were some of the first people on the wine side that you're like, yeah, this person, this is, this is a thing? You know, I was inspired. I mean, I, Angelo Gaia is a friend of mine. He was one of the, one of the first people I met as a wine writer. I, um, 
it was, it was funny for a while. I was close with Helen Turley and John Wetloffer, who have since fallen out of my life. I, I think I got excommunicated, like many people. I'm not sure why. Um, but uh, I learned there was never a note or anything. They no, but I, no, but I, but I, but I learned a lot about wine from those from those guys, and and I had some very very good times with them. Uh, Bruno Buri of Ducru Bocayu uh, became a very close friend of mine, and he's a. Uh, uh, in addition to wine, we love a lot. You know, we have a lot bon of vivants. other passionate interests. He likes to uh, cook. And we, yeah, he cooks. Uh, he's an art collector. Um, he has some of the best Keith Herrings I've ever seen. I mean, aside from a whole lot of other stuff. Yes, he's a bon vivant, let's say. And um, you know, I learned from these guys. I actually, um, you know, I learned. I learned a lot from Bob Parker. And then I, you know, with great trepidation, I called up to and said, you know. Could I write about a column about you? And he, he said, "Come on down." Imagine meeting Robert Parker in 1996. I mean, at the was, height of his thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's you know, he was the the man. And as I said, a lot of what I knew I learned from reading his the, the Wine Advocate, you know. And uh, uh, but it was great. He we went we went to lunch. It was just the two of us, and we drank like three bottles of wine. See a big eater. <laughs> he eats a lot. He's a huge eater. Yeah, he's a huge eater. I, in fact, he told me the story himself about it. he went to um, Charlie Trotter's in, in in Chicago in the early days. I think I had just been, so we were talking about it. And he said, oh, "I love Charlie Trotter's. He's great." He said, "He said the only thing is that I did the tasting menu. It's like sixteen courses." And he said, "I was still hungry, so so I went to Wiener Town and had three dogs." And <laughs> you know, that's that's Parker. You know, he's he's a you know one of the things that that I really liked about Parker and that, and that I still admire is that he. He's a hedonist, you know. I mean, I know certain wine writers and critics who sort of like, you know, sort of spit and dump. And, and you know, at the end of the night, you, you figure you're like, they've maybe had two-thirds of a glass of wine in the course of, of several hours. And you know what? I don't trust those people. I don't trust, I don't trust anybody who isn't a hedonist on the subject of food and wine. It's like Sydney Green like, Street here you know, from the skinny. from Maltese Falcon. It's like, I, well done, sir. I don't trust the man who doesn't drink. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't. <laughs> and, you know, but Parker is like, you know, I'd I'd see him at, um, I'd see him at Danielle in the early the early days when Danielle had his first restaurant, and I briefly lived on the Upper East Side, right next door, virtually to Danielle. And you know, this was before I uh, knew him or was writing about writing about one. I'd see this guy. You know, it'd be a table of three or four people and like 16 bottles of wine. And it was, I don't know, it was kind of impressive. <laughs> but, you know, I still think he he was a tremendous force for for good and for education in early American wine scene. And by early, I mean, you know, the 80s. I mean, really, all of this, all of this culture that we are now part of, you and me and so many other people... You know, it, it didn't really exist before the wine advocate came along and before the 1982 Bordeaux vintage and, and the sort of the cult of the chef arose more or less at the same time. But, but we didn't have that. You know, when Montrachet opened in 1985 uh, or Union Square Cafe, you know, a sommelier was like a, a cranky, you know, cranky fat French guy in a tuxedo with an ashtray around his neck. And uh, fine dining meant, you know, very stiff, formal... French dining, it was a whole different world. And wine pretty much meant Bordeaux. And it pretty much, you know, we, we all just accepted the 1855 classification and we drank whatever vintage came along. And, and, and it all changed. In the years that I wrote 
published Bright Lights Big City and, and, and subsequently I, it seems to me it coincided with, you know, a tremendous flowering of interest in, in wine in this country. And um, suddenly there was a wine culture. And I think Parker deserves credit for a lot of that. I mean, it's funny that you phrase it that way because a lot of times what I think of is your real subject beyond anything else, beyond New York or certain social sets, is transformation. This mm-hmm. is a thing or a person that's about to move from this to yeah. that. Yeah. And I see you, when you structure articles about wine, you structure it often in the same way. Like, huh. this is what's going to change. This is happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all, I, fe- I wow. see very often Here. that you focus in on the change, the change moment. And you've been around for some. You've just kind of, you've been around for some changes. Yeah. I mean, to me, the big change is there's certainly been a democratization of wine knowledge and of wine writing. And uh, to me, the big, the big shift in the last five years or so has been a sommelier culture has sort of become, it has replaced to some extent the, the, the critics. That is to say, there is a, um, there's now a community of sommeliers around the country. Every major city has a community of sommeliers, and they are educating people about wine and influencing how wine is made as much as anybody else. You know, I mean, I think we've never been so inundated with uh, wine information and opinion, and there's room for a lot of schools out there. You know, some people love big fleshy Napa Cabernets with cleavage, you know, and, you know, my heart is in the leaner, more elegant, uh, less ripe style, I suppose. But, um, but, you know, I think there's, uh, I think there's room at the table for, for a lot of styles. I mean, I think that that is the insight that people of, how should I say, your generation have that sometimes the younger writers don't. It seems like the, some of the younger writers are more like, this is what it is. And the people who have <laughs> well, seen this thing change once or twice are like, yeah, yeah, well, it's a big world. Well, you know, if I leave myself in the hands of a, a sommelier in Brooklyn, I, I can pretty much predict that I'll get an orange wine from, <laughs> you know. It's going to be something really different and kind of new and, and something that the, the, your father's sommelier would, wouldn't have ever even heard of. And how does that make you feel? Because you well, chronicled sommeliers from the beginning. One I of your like, first articles was on John Luke. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, well, you know, I like learning. So when I go to a restaurant, you know, that has a sommelier, I I often kind of say, "Hey, I'd like love to see something new and different." And a lot of what I've learned about wine has been from from sommeliers. I, I you know, they're on the front lines. Even though even though I write about wine, I'm, I'm still a full time novelist and I, I i can't taste 40 wines a day you know i drink two or three a day but i don't i'm not always out there tasting and uh psalms more and more have have become the educators of, of this generation of wine drinkers and i had my own small patch of knowledge which was partly shaped by my friends in london you know when i published bright light i went to london i met um well, i met a lot of guys like Martin Amos and Ian McEwen and Salman Rushdie and but uh, but the the, the guy bad that, boys of the, the British <laughs> side because those are all kind yeah. of bad boys and you're kind of the yeah. bad boy of this side right but oddly enough the one I bonded with was Julian Barnes who's not a bad boy you know I mean he he's uh, he is Apollo to my Dionysus and uh, but we really hit it off and one of the reasons we did was because he was really into wine and he and he invited me we met at this big literary dinner but he, 
he asked me if I had any nights free while I was in London. And he invited me over to his house a couple of days later. And, um, and he had a real wine cellar, which that was really cool. And I mean, you know, Tom Stoppard there too, but, um, but it was, you know, and, he, and he, I remember he served, he served two shots enough to pops. And I thought, Shot Enough to Bob was like my college date wine. And I thought it wasn't very serious because I, I don't know. It was just, it was just a wine that, you know, I, I used to order to impress girls in college and I forgot about it, but he served two Chateauneufs, so which at that time would have been about 20 years old, a 64 and a 67 Paul Jabelet Les Cedres. And I thought, wow, this is great. And oh, and also besides Tom Stauber, uh, uh, Genesis Robinson was at the table. So I met her and she wears her learning very lightly, you know, and I, and frankly, a lot of times she'd rather talk about books than wine, you know, or food or anything but wine. But, but of course, you know, most of us want to hear what she has to say. And uh, so I learned, I learned a lot from these guys. But basically what I learned was the Rhone and Bordeaux. So when I started writing about wine, say, 10 years later, um, I started exploring the new wine regions. Like, you know, I went to California. Not a new wine region, but it was to me. Uh, I went to Argentina. I went to Chile. Uh, I went to South Africa. So, you know, all along, I've been trying to find the new wine regions myself. And uh, I mean, at this point, it's really hard to keep up. But it seemed like for a while in the 90s, you could keep up. But, you know, I get around. But does it seem like over that same period of time that the idea of celebrity and wine became closer? It certainly, yeah. It happened with chefs about what 15 20 years ago and it seems to be happening with uh sommeliers and 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 winemakers yeah to a certain extent because did I mean, you I, shift from going it's, hanging out it's with fashion models to sommeliers <laughs> you're like oh no these are the new fashion models i don't i definitely don't hang out with fashion models anymore i spent a lot I, you know i did that and, and it was fun but the conversations weren't very enlightening <laughs> And eventually it's like, you know, vodka and cocaine don't really teach you much in the long run. But, you know, wine is an endless subject. And it's a way of intellectualizing my hedonism, you know. I mean, I, st I, I still had the buzz, but it was, you know, I'm a student. And I'm, a, you know, I don't want to sound pretentious, but I like to think I'm an intellectual. And I like to, I like to study. And wine is an endless subject. You know, you can never, ever learn everything there is to know about wine but you know you can approach wine too from so many angles i mean for me one of the benefits that i have as a novelist is that i'm fairly adept at creating metaphors and similes and analogies and and to me that's the only way that i can really convey the thrill and the impression that i get from a given wine because i don't know i don't know if i'm a super taster i don't think i am and also, I don't know that much about flowers. So, you know, you're never going to hear me say that something smells like hibiscus or some type of rose because I just don't, <laughs> I don't have that knowledge. And I think that, you know, exact descriptors can really trip us up sometimes, you know. I would rather go with a, you know, with a, with a metaphor, a uh, uh, Driving through the desert of would, Vegas before the casino is like decanting the coat roti, like that kind of thing, right? Because yeah. there's always an excitement when you do it. It seems like a and like an adventure. Yeah. Like, don't bogart that Sancho. <laughs> is one of my favorite Jay comments. You know that old Rioja. Huh? Yes, I remember that one. 
I really leaned heavily on the sort of models and actresses when I started writing about wine. You know, like you know, you know like Chablis is like Kate Moss, and and the California Chardonnay is like Pamela Anderson. You know, I mean that's that's the obvious kind of one. Uh, but you know, going back eighteen years now, let's say when Pamela Anderson was still a current name, if you said to someone this wine is like Pamela Anderson, they they kind of know what you mean, even if you know. Whereas if you said it's um, oaky and buttery that 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 might work too but i think pamela anderson's more direct <laughs> poems pops you know songs i mean yeah I, I i so i've reached for a lot of these things because i think that i think people can grasp a shared cultural reference sometimes more easily than they can a string of descriptors you know you string together, as, 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 as wine critics often do, a whole bunch of flavors, you know, mocha and, uh, and black currant and, and graphite and, you know, you know, all these things that, you know, I, I, I feel like as, as a reader and a drinker, my head is, is um, spinning. I'll never forget who was. Um, somebody was trying to describe an Austrian, an Austrian um, Riesling. And uh, and I remember there was um, pebbles, minerals, boulders. It was like, but it's all fucking rocks, dude. It's like, you know. watch out for those teeth. <laughs> this could hurt. Yeah, I, I just, I like everybody else. I, I resort to those flavor descriptors and those uh, aroma descriptors as well. But I, I'm just. I'm just not sure how useful they are for all the time for everyday readers. But know? if I was making the kind of illusions that you make, I would find it harder with this era of generational change to yeah. figure out how to do that. Because I would be like, well, am I talking to boomers? Am I talking <laughs> yeah. to X? Am I talking to Mel? Should I be listening to like the weekend Good videos? Point. or yeah, like you know? Because I find it hard to keep up with what <laughs> the kids like. And, yeah. you know. Well, yeah, I'm stuck with, I'm stuck with my own cultural references. But... Um, but on the other hand, we, had, we do share a world of popular culture. Uh, most of us, even if we're, you know, whether we're 25 or 60. I mean, I, you know, I, I listen to a lot of the same. I, I watch a lot of the same TV and listen to a lot of the same music as my kids do. My kids are 20. But do they watch movies? I found that's the big difference. When I make movie references, everyone's like, what? <laughs> you mean in a theater? Like you went and saw that in the dark? Yeah, well, they, wa they watch them on their computers. <laughs> you know, it seems like no one watches movies anymore. Know, you, You're like, oh, really? You've never seen The Godfather? Really? Is that true? Really? Yeah? No, nah, surely The Godfather is, is still a common cultural Ask, ask. <laughs> I, I challenge you to leave this in, interview and in, ask in a my, young person. In my house it is. You know, but, yeah, you, you mean, you're like, all right, before dinner comes, I want you to tell, yeah, tell you, me who was the bad and dog. And you know, Scarface is a big touchstone right. in hip-hop hip culture. Sure. So, is, well, so is The Godfather, I think. But, um, you, you can't be entirely up to the minute when you're my age. Uh, but um, I lean on... Uh, I lean on what I consider timeless um, cultural references uh, as I get older, maybe. I mean, you know, I, I, um, you know, I describe Burgundy as being more Fitzgerald's to Bordeaux's Hemingway, you know? I mean, I like to think people are still aware of <laughs> Fitzgerald and Hemingway, but maybe I'm being optimistic. Well, I think but a lot it, of people like that idea. 
that they like kind of touch into that more literary side without really having to do the work yeah. by reading your it's thing. True. Being like, oh, I feel more sophisticated. Mm. He's using a Hemingway reference. Yeah. You know what I mean. Now, I once, I once got some nasty comment from a reader of the Wall Street Journal who wanted to know who ter- her two Turgenev was. So, <laughs> and accused me of being an elitist. And I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> you know, there's something too that's, you know, this raises the whole question of elite wine and elitism and you know let's face it it is a somewhat rarefied body of knowledge of interest and uh you know there are some people who just think that it's foppish to even pretend that there are differences between wines that we can discern and discuss and you know i don't know uh, we just aren't going to have much to say to those people we wish them well but we don't want to have dinner with them you know (laughs) How much do the literary predecessors for you really still hang out in your head? I mean, you talked about Hemingway and Fitzgerald, but I mean, how, what about Mailer and Plimpton? I mean, what about the guys well, who took to, New York as the story? Yeah, well, you know, I was, um, I came to New York in 1980. And uh, in 1982, George Plimpton published my first short story in the Paris Review. And I was, and I was lucky to, I mean, that was a great moment in my life. I never forget when he called up and I thought it was somebody pranking me. Oh, George Plimpton, yeah. And he claimed to like my story, and I'm not very good with imitations, but he wanted to um, he wanted to publish it. And um, really, it was sort of rushed into print in a matter of, of, of well, months, which is quick for a literary journal. And, and I was invited, I started getting invited to his house, which was the last great literary salon in New York. Uh, he had a big townhouse on East 72nd, all the way on the river. And... Uh, it was also the offices of the Paris Review. And you'd go there, and, you know, the first time I went there, I saw William Styron, Norman Mailer, Truman Capote. This was, like, his last year, I think. Um, Robert Stone, Gay Talese, um, and all these beautiful young girls, too, which was part of the, always part of the scene at George's house. And we would, you know, they would subsequently take me to Elaine's. Um, not, you know, not a real touchstone for food and wine, but a great, an incredible um you know, it was an incredible gathering spot for the, you know, the sort of literary entertainment elite of the 70s and the 80s. And uh, and I met a lot of these guys. I mean, I spent, I spent a lot of time with Mailer. Who, uh, Mailer actually showed up. The first time I met Mailer, I think, was he showed up at my book party. I had a book party at Area, the nightclub. Uh, it's probably the first book party that was held at a nightclub. And Area was kind of the hot spot then. It was the spot. And uh, along with Boy George... And Sting, um, Mailer showed up. And that was pretty cool because, you know, it was sort of this generational uh, sort of meeting of the generations. And he, you know, tacitly gave me his blessing. I, I don't know whether he had read the book at that point. But um, but we subsequently became friends, and I spent, I spent a lot of time with him. And, um, you know, he was a great drinker. I mean, I don't think he was a very discriminating drinker. I don't think he ever, I don't think he ever thought much about wine, but... Um, but of course, at the time, I wasn't thinking much about it either. Vodka was my fuel for a while. But Mailer uh, kind of grappled with guy. being a man, right? I mean, that part of his subject is how to be masculine, right? He was um, very self Well, I don't want to say self-conscious about it. Yeah, that was, that was a big... I think that was a big thing for him and his generation, you know? I think by the time my generation came along, I don't think we were that interested in that question you know i mean feminism just was something i absorbed and accepted mailer never did you know 
I found Mailer's whole uh, his obsession with masculinity to be a little wearying in the end. You know, I, he, he partly inherited that from Hemingway, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure it was very tedious in uh, in Hemingway too. If you had, if one had known Hemingway, um, you know, all that arm wrestling and in Norman. In Norman's case, it was thumb wrestling, and so we used to have to thumb wrestle. I mean, Jesus, you know, aren't we aren't we adults here? <laughs> but he, you know. He he always had to be the alpha male, and uh, I mean, in my case, it was easy to let him be the alpha male. You know, he was Norman Mailer, no problem. But, but I still had a great time with him, and I learned a lot from him. And um, I I even got headbutted by him once, which was very exciting. How did that go down? <laughs> well, I mean, it was it was planned. He wanted to like headbutt and see who would. You know, <laughs> he was like, "Who's in for this?" Yeah, yeah. He's. I got a fun party trick. <laughs> yeah, but he was. Um, I mean, he was certainly one of my mentors. My real uh, mentor, though, was somebody who finally had to give up the liquid pursuit of pleasure, uh, Raymond Carver, who was just apparently just um, a really, really bad drinker. And I met him just after he went on the wagon. But um, as a writer, as a mentor, I learned as much from him as from any, anyone. And, uh, and you know, I, th I think he's one of the most uh, important writers of... Um, the latter half of the 20th century, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, he sort of revived literary realism and, and the short story in, in much the same way that Hemingway did uh, in, the, in the early part of the century. Is I was lucky enough to study with him at uh, Syracuse and uh, spent a couple of years under his tutelage. And, uh, and uh, my first book, we ended up kind of touring together because he had a, a collection coming out. Um, he was a great guy and I miss him. What was he like in person? I, he was very gentle, and I mean, he was a big bear of a man. He uh, first time I met him, he he came down to my apartment. My my future editor and former Williams roommate Gary Fiskajohn had lunch with him and Gordon Lesh, and and actually Gary and I had been out all night the night before, and so I was sleeping when he called me after lunch, and he said, uh, "You got to uh, Raymond Carver is here and." we have to go back to work and he doesn't know what to do. So I'm sending him to your apartment. I say, Oh yeah, sure. And I hung up. And then like 10 minutes later, the buzzer buzzes and there's this big hulking guy at my door. And we sat down and, um, I just, you know, didn't know what to do. He sat down and, and we just started talking we talked for about four hours. It was, uh, uh, it was quite extraordinary. And then, and then realized we were late for his reading up at Columbia and raced on the subway up to Columbia. And, and he, he could see that living in New York and staying up all night doing cocaine was not was not really conducive to my goal of becoming a writer. And he he convinced me to um, um, the, the 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 reason we were late for reading in Columbia is because we were blowing some lines. But <laughs> he did bumps with uh... <laughs> yeah. So so then we um, he encouraged me to uh, to come to uh, Syracuse where he was teaching and. Uh, they said he might be able to get me a fellowship. And I mean, I don't know why he thought that, that I would be a good candidate since at that, at that time he didn't know anything about my writing, but, but, um, that's what happened. I applied, uh, he got me a, a fellowship and, uh, and I moved to Syria, reluctantly moved to Syracuse. Cause you can imagine, I, you know, after three, four years in New York in the eighties, I didn't, did not really want to go to Syracuse, New York. But on the other hand, if I hadn't gone to Syracuse, I probably never would have written Bright Lights, Big City, which was about, you know, 
frittering my life away <laughs> in the early 80s in New York. But did that become like kind of a role for you that you had to play with other people? Like, hey, I'm the bon vivant of New York, but you know. Well, yeah, definitely. It became a bit of a trap. And, you know, a bit of a, you know, as I said, as I said earlier, it was a persona that was based on uh, certain aspects of my personality and my behavior, but it wasn't, but it was kind of confining after a while, you know? I mean, I still, you know, I just, I was kind of shocked I picked up the New York Times. Pete Wells, on his way to thrashing Jonathan Waxman, uh, talks about, you know, jam, the revival of jams, the great 80s restaurant. And, and he says, um, anybody who expects to see Jay McInerney in the men's room snorting, believing in marching powder, will be disappointed. And I thought, wow, that, that's, still, that's still my image 30 years later. <laughs> Had you been to jams? I did go to jams, yeah. Yeah. I did. I remember. I remember jams. Uh, you know, not not too clearly, but I yeah, I went to jams. I remember met Jonathan then, and uh, you know, it was it was kind of a cool place. You know, it was we picked restaurants then for their fashionability. Really, you know, it's like anything by Brian and Keith McNally was cool. Odeon's uh, on the cover, right? Odeon's on the cover of Brian's Big City. I am. I actually uh, did lawyers at one point when they were. When the book was, you know, well on its way to print, they suddenly said, "God damn, you gotta, we gotta get permission." They said, "This place, Odeon, is real," and I said, "Yeah." And they said, "Well, you you allege that people do drugs there," and I said, "Well, it's worse than that. It's on the cover." And they said, "Oh my god," they said, "You've got to, you got to get permission for this." So I actually went down and met Keith McNally for the first time. I mean, I'd seen him around, but I'd never had any, you know, I was not someone that he was going to take notice of at that point, and. Um, so, you know, we now, we now have a running joke that he, I say he owes me money and he says that I owe him money. But what'd you tell him? Be, because, well, I, I, I explained that, you know, there was a couple of scenes said in the book and this, people were doing some drugs in the bathroom. And he said, he said I'm shocked. And um, I mean, I, I think he basically thought he was never going to hear about this book again. And so he just said, yeah, fine. You have my permission. And, uh, and 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 it was that and that cover image was it became extremely iconic. You know, this this guy standing with his back to us um, in front of the Odeon with the World Trade Towers looming in the background. Uh, you know, it's a it's a very iconic image, I guess, at this point. In fact, uh, you know, on September 11th, I was walking. You know, was walking to the East Village. I was actually walking over Brett's apartment. And somebody and I started talking to somebody in the street, and. Uh, she, you know, she had just, she was covered in dust because she had just come up from there. And she suddenly started crying. And I said, what is it? What is it? And she said, oh my God, I just thought of the cover of your book. And, uh, you know, the towers had just come down. And, uh, I mean, it's an odd, you know, it's an odd aspect of, of the cover image now. But at the time, I think Keith McNally just thought, eh, sure, who, who cares, whatever. But, you know, I, I like to claim that I put his kids through college. You know? I, I ate those various restaurants so many times that, what was the day after that book came out like for you? I mean, how did your life change? Oh, I mean, it took a while. I mean, things happened slower then, you know, because there, you know, there was no internet, and um, basically, my I had been prepared for for nothing. In other words, uh, Jason Epstein, the, the editor in chief of Random House, took me out to lunch, and he basically said, "Look, you've written a really good book." But he said, "Kids your age don't read. Uh, the novel's dead." Don't expect much, you know, kid. And so, 
And I had seen, I'd actually been working in, I'd worked at Random House for a while as, as a reader, you know, somebody who read unsolicited manuscripts. And I had friends who were writers and I'd seen people publish books and, and I'd seen that the world didn't change and their lives didn't even change. So I wasn't expecting much, but, but it actually, it started to get frantic pretty quickly. And there was a bidding war in Hollywood and, and there was an early, uh, the New York Review of Books did a huge review of it. Like, like virtually on publication, which they almost never do. And then, I don't know, I, got it, I, got it, I was on the Today Show before I knew it, and then suddenly Mick Jagger's people were calling, and they wanted me to do a profile of him. And yeah, my life changed pretty quickly. And it was exciting and overwhelming, and I'm sure I did a lot of stupid things that I would rather that I hadn't. <laughs> and I said a lot of stupid things, and, and a lot of... A lot of things were attributed to me that simply weren't true. I mean, I was spotted in all kinds of places with all kinds of people that I had never been to and never met. And it was interesting. <laughs> and I discovered that waiters and restaurants would like sell, would, would like listen in on my conversations with people and call the papers. And that was pretty weird. And it didn't help that around that time I started dating Marla Hansen, who I don't know if you remember her, but she was the slashed model she uh, this um, woman who was um, attacked by the thugs hired by her landlords who slashed her face with the razor blades and she became you know uh, sort of a sensation and a, and a tabloid fixture and um, and that, that that added to the the frenzy I guess but as I say wine was a nice escape from all of that did it seem more grown up Yeah, I mean, I guess it seemed more it seemed more grown up than vodka and cocaine, yeah. <laughs> But I didn't want it to be too grown up, you know? I mean, I thought, and part of the problem with wine, you know, even today, is this sense among the civilians that it's this terribly stuffy, elitist, um, grown-up, phony kind of a preoccupation. And, and, and I, I always wanted to battle that notion, you know? I, you know, I saw myself as a, as a, as a wine populist, as opposed to a, a wine elitist. You know, I mean, of course, I, I drink a little better now than I used to in those days, but but I still, uh, you know, to loop back to something we were saying earlier, I, I still I still really like to taste something, you know, from a new region that I've never tasted before that my sommelier is all excited about. What does the literary world think of the wine writing? Do people from that world ever tell you? Well, I think they finally noticed. I don't know. Well, you know, the worst thing they think is that, oh, he's just quit. He's quit writing fiction. And now for some reason he's turned his energies to wine writing. And in fact, um, you know, I still devote more of my time to fiction uh, than to wine writing. I did, however, spend two years writing a novel that I never, I decided not to publish. So that, that kind of, um, it made for this long hiatus between my last novel and, and and the next one which is coming out this summer i've done this twice uh i did it i actually did right after bright lights i i i wrote a novel that i decided not to publish and um you know and i'm and i'm glad actually and it was my agent who first said to me ah jay i don't, I don't know about this one and i thought about it for a while and i said yeah you're right and um and my editor said ah, i don't think you've got the ending right and finally i said you know what it's not the ending it's just i can't i just don't think I don't think this worked. 
And I may go back to this book now. Now that I've finished the the, the current one, uh, which which I just handed in a couple months ago, um, you know, I like to think nothing's ever wasted. At, at the at the very least, I'll, I'll mine it for spare parts. You know. Do you ever think about writing in the second person again? Uh, I don't think I'd write a novel in the second person again. Um, partly because the the success of Bright Lights almost precludes that. You know, it's like people would just accuse me of imitating myself, and also it's hard. It's hard. Uh, it's very limiting. And, you know, I think I found the perfect sort of limited subject and time frame for writing a novel in the second person. But but there's a lot that you can't do with the second person. I mean, you're sort of wedded to a single consciousness. And, um, and you know, I don't think it works at length. You know, you just can't write a big panoramic social novel in the second person. Um, but you know stories, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm actually working on a story in the second person right now. Um, Do you find that the audience responds differently? Do they feel like you're really telling them about them? Well, it worked that time. <laughs> Works pretty damn well. Um, you know, I just had, I was just in Burgundy, and I was at Becky Wasserman's house, um, and this English uh, guy who I guess is a wine importer was. Um, I, they, was at lunch and, and about two and a half hours into lunch, you know, he'd heard that I was a writer and he heard I wrote about wine. And then, and then somebody brought up my novels. He suddenly said, Oh my God. He said, you wrote bright lights, big city. And he seemed to think that it was a relatively obscure book, but he had just read it the, like six months before. And he was, he, he was like absolutely rhapsodic. And, um, I mean, he, he just couldn't stop talking about it. And I felt, I thought, wow. I mean, it's good to know that, um, it can still pack a punch and that it, or that it can still, um, you know, be uh, an emotional experience for someone who is, well, he was my age, I guess, but he missed it the first time around. And uh, I'm still really proud of that book. And, 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 and there's, there's a type of book that only people in their 20s can write, you know. I mean, you, can only, you can only write that coming-of-age novel once, and you can only mine your own life for that. Uh, type of experience once and uh, and frankly i think you know there's a certain attunement to the zeitgeist that belongs to to young people and uh, you stop hearing a certain kind of hum of the universe when when you get older and you know i think my later books are probably better than bright let's big city but but i think that you know that the, the book struck a chord uh that um you know, made people talk about it as as a generational novel. Did you and intend I that from that, the beginning? I Were you like, I'm going to no, write a generational novel? Geez, no. I mean, I was I was just hoping that I was hoping to get enough good reviews to get a teaching job somewhere or a, or a, a newspaper job somewhere. I didn't I didn't remotely think it would uh, would would be successful. I mean, it's another thing that Jason Epstein said to me is he said, you know. Nobody wants to read about New York City. He said it's. He said it's. I mean, it's funny now because uh, there have been so many subsequently so many New York novels, but but there hadn't been one in a, quite a long time. I mean, if you think about, it, I mean, Mailer and his generation, they weren't writing about you know even the guys who lived in New York, they weren't really writing about New York. I mean, Cheever wrote some stories about New York, uh, but really since uh, after Salinger, there, there there wasn't that much New York fiction between. Catcher in the Rye and Bright Lights, Big City. I mean, I mean, I can't think of any any really really successful or popular novels. Um, 
So, you know, it's in the second person. It's set in New York. It's about a guy who works in New York and wants to be a writer. And it, it didn't, didn't remotely seem like this was going to be of interest to a whole lot of people. Um, it was a surprise to me when it was. Jay McInerney, it's been a surprise, but it worked when it worked. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Libby. Jay McInerney of Town & Country. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.